You are listening to Anchored in Faith, formerly known as HCD Talks, the official podcast of Humano Corpus Dignitate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Anchored in Faith. My name is Angel. I am Carlos. And we are here with a very special guest. Carlos, would you like to take it away? Yes, we have enjoyed um, all of our podcasts thus far, having a chance to speak to some amazing people in ministry and in different capacities of our faith. And today we are speaking to Myra Rodriguez, who used to be the uh, director of the biggest Planned Parenthood clinic in the state of Arizona. So who now is a uh, speaker for those on the pro-life side of the conversation, but focused also on the dignity of all as she's trying to really show how much love God has for all of us and how we are looking at things in probably in a different way than we should on this issue of abortion. And we're really excited about this because we had a chance to speak to you earlier this week, sort of get a little pre-chat before our conversation. And just a lot of what you were saying and your approach to everything, you have such a big heart and you, you do care for everyone, everyone, but you're very concerned about the well-being of everyone concerning abortion and those who've either had them or considering them. And you just, from what we've seen so far, you have such a powerful story to share. So we wanted, we, we were honored that you would be willing to come onto our podcast and share that story. So we thank you for coming. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure and the honor is all mine to be here with you guys, for you guys to take my testimony and show the truth about the abortion industry, right? Which is why my story is about, it's not only about mm -hmm. rights of every human has a right, but also the, the fact that the abortion industry has lied to all of us, right? And I say all of us because I'm guilty, right? I was in that industry for many, many years and believe all of their false promises, false stories, and what they will tell the world that it's not the truth. And that's what it is. My story is about the truth. And, and people, usually they can come forward and say anything to me because I'm speaking the truth, you know? So usually they don't have any way to debate me because I was there. So the pressure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being here. So Myra, something I'd like to ask you, first of all, is how did you start working in Planned Parenthood? What department were you in and what were your responsibilities starting out? And I know that you were able to move your way pretty far up um, into the company and you were even representing the company when it came to legislation and things like that and going to Washington. So what was your journey um, in Planned Parenthood up until that point? Right. So my journey started a bit different than many stories you have heard, right, from other former abortion workers or Planned Parenthood former employees. So my story is different because I was an immigrant, a Mexican immigrant who moved to this country at the age of 18 with a tourist visa. And then one day the visa expired and I found myself in this country without documents to work. I had my certification as a lab, um, basically what it's considered a lab tech from Mexico City. My passion for the medical field, actually in Mexico City, I had already started the university, you know, college to go to med school because I wanted to be a doctor. So my passion was the healthcare field. Uh, when I came to this country and then my visa expired and then I was without documents since there was no DREAM Act or any DACA back then, I couldn't attend college. I could only attend community colleges 
and pay like a lot of money to go to a community college. So there was my dream about being a doctor. So what next? I was working like many immigrants, you know, in the restaurant industry and whatever you can find, right? Until one day, a friend of mine said, why don't you come to work for Planned Parenthood? They don't care. I'm, my, her immigration status was the same as mine. They don't care. They will hire you. And they need people that speak Spanish. You know, you really want people to approach the immigration community, you know, that they will feel welcome. And probably later on the podcast, I'm going to tell you why that's important to Planned Parenthood. Right. But so I'm like, well, OK, they help women, she said. And I said, OK, now coming from Mexico City back in the early 2000s, abortion was illegal. So I didn't know much about abortion. In fact, I had very little knowledge about Planned Parenthood, but what my friend told me, they help women, they do this, you know, and then they go the long list of services that have nothing to do with abortion, right, that we have heard many times. So I walk into the doors of Planned Parenthood, and I remember they check all my paperwork, mostly everything was Mexican. I had a high school diploma because I did do a few courses here in high school, uh, community college, but mostly they, they wanted to see my studies from Mexico because they were related to healthcare. And then they asked me the question, Maya, what do you think about abortion? Oh, I said, well, I wouldn't do one. I wouldn't have one. I um, don't want one for me. But if any woman does, it's her problem. It's her body and her choice. Famous phrase, right? And that's how I started with Planned Parenthood. At the beginning, I was mostly working in clinics that had nothing to do with abortion, like contraceptive services, preventive services. I wore many, many hats. And when I say many hats is that I started as a healthcare assistant, which is equivalent to medical assistant, went up to being a team leader, went up to being the training coordinator for the entire state of Arizona, which means I trained mostly any healthcare assistant that came to work for Planned Parenthood in around 2010 then became the director of a Title Ten clinic. And then after that, there was a second clinic. And then praising me as a golden child and because my devotion to them was always fully, basically because if you ever had been in contact with immigrants, you find that they're very grateful, especially when they're given an opportunity that hardly it's an American dream, right? And you hardly can dream of having it, right? And that was that to me. It was a dream to work in the healthcare field and help women right so then it came the Myra your employee of the year award for the state of Arizona and then finally the question Myra we want you to run the biggest abortion clinic in the state of Arizona because you've been with us for too long you know the business you know blah 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 and that's how my story went I mean I could go into the details of what I used to do but basically my last few years with them which is like about 10 I was directing clinics, um, which means hiring and training and going into the community to speak to the community about Planned Parenthood, you know, like schools, like JIT programs and stuff like that. So, and then it came to the part when they sent me to Washington, D.C., um, along with Cecile Richards and other people to do some advocacy, to do some canvassing so they wouldn't lose title back in 2017 when Trump took off. So um, when did you, you obviously had a change of heart. Um, when did that start to be apparent to you? And what was it that finally, what was your final conversion? Well, such a hard, um, it's a hard moment because I know most people think, Maya, you were there 17 years, right? 
like 70 years. You're telling me in 70 years, you never noticed anything wrong. But you know, that's what the abortion industry is so smart about. They're very smart about uh, keeping things in, what could you say, like lock, so then people won't see them, right? So I was in clinics that had nothing to do with abortion. And every time you hear something on the news or, you know, pro-life movement said something, you know, or something big about it, it was like, that's not true. You know, there, there, he goes the memo to all the employees, that's not true. We want you to know that it's, this is not true, that we're working to clarify this, that we're fighting this in, in, in the justice system, that this is not true, right? And constantly like that. So the way I put it to people is like, imagine you are married to a person and everyone tells you this guy is the worst, you know, that, that he's abusive and this and that, but you don't see it because he treats you well, you know? He treats you well, so you don't see that, right? But one day... You find out he's cheating on you. You see it. He's cheating on you. You know, the deception of everyone was right and I was wrong. The blindfold thing came out when that happened. When I took over the biggest abortion clinic in the state of Arizona at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. You know, the very first thing I noticed was my entire time with Planned Parenthood, I really, really bought the... Abortion is only 20% of our services. I really thought, Myra, what you do at the non-abortion clinic is more important than what we do because what you do is most of the work, right? And when you take over to at the biggest abortion clinic, you notice that that's not true. How? Financially. The clinic that didn't do any abortions barely make $2,000 a day. When I took that money to the bank, it was barely $2,000. But the clinic that did abortions, it was over 20 grand every day. That is not 80% of service. That is not 20% of service. That's 80% of services, like everyone says outside. Number two, I started seeing what everyone was talking about abort abortion. The damage on women, the irregularities. You know, the state of Arizona is thankfully one of the few left states conservative about abortion. So they had a lot of legislations, a lot of laws, a lot of um, processes in place to protect women, basically. And constantly the abortionists will not only him not go by the rules, not uh, follow the guidelines, but also have the staff not following guidelines, you know, and break the law, literally break the law. And then um, there was perforations that went on on women without being either charted or falsification of patient charts, falsification of patient records, women not being told you will never be able to be a mother ever again. That really hit me. But I know everyone wants to know my before and after moment. And the, the scene I'm about to describe, it, it's it's it still makes me cry sometimes, so I apologize if you hear some rocking of my voice, but this, this 19-year-old comes for an abortion. She's about 14 weeks pregnant. And the doctor performs the abortion. Now, the girl had requested an IUD after her abortion. The state of Arizona has a law in place that says that the abortionist and the um, assistant of the abortionist and the nurse must make sure that everything has been accounted for. And by that, I mean that every piece of the product of conception, that's what they call babies, it's been accounted for. That means one head, one torso, two arms, two legs, two hands, two feet. Right. And until he has make sure himself that he went on and check the products of conception, that's when he can testify on the chart that the abortion has been completed, not before. Well, he constantly didn't do that. 
because he wanted to finish faster. He will send his assistant, have the assistant done on her own, and he will continue just with the patient in the room. The state of Arizona plays a lot because a lot of women end up in the emergency room. And when there's leftover from the abortion, they get an infection and they could die. In fact, there was an example from Argentina who recently legalized abortion a couple weeks ago. This young woman had an abortion by pill and she had septicemia all over her body and died, right? Because she didn't even expose her baby before she died, right? So that's why the state of Arizona has these laws to protect these women from that happening. So, but he constantly will not follow the law. So the staff member, the assistant, went on and said, we're missing part. And he said, go look again. Go look everywhere. She said, I have looked everywhere. He had already inserted an IUD. So now you can see how this was inconvenient for him, that she couldn't find a part of the baby. And he didn't want to check again because he already inserted an IUD. You know, he's not about to do the whole work again. She got very concerned. And when I explain about this staff member, I try to do it because I want people to know that the people working inside those clinics, we're not inhumans. You know, this girl was very concerned about the patient going home with a baby part inside her. I mean, any if, if she was a bad human being, she'd be like, well, okay, it's his problem, you know, and it's her problem and he's a doctor and whatever, I'll do my job. But she was very concerned and very worried. She came to my office and said, you know what, Myra? He's about to walk out of the room. I already told him we're missing parts. He's not believing me. He told me to look everywhere. I don't want to get fired, but we can't let her go like this. She was very concerned, like to the point of crying. So I go back and I talk to him and I say, I'll talk to him. Don't worry. Nothing will happen to you. I'll take care of it. I'll go back. And after arguing, we didn't have a good relationship to begin with because, um, I have always been known for following the protocol by the book. And he didn't like that. And when I said, doctor, it seems that you're still missing parts. You're missing the head. And he says, go look in the trash. That word right there. I can promise you that every day I still remember the tone of his voice. I still remember his face when he said, go look for that baby head in the trash. Go look for the head in the trash. Like if that baby was trash to him, you know, like if it was just a piece of gauze, just like any part of his instrument, that did it. You know, I remember, I mean, after arguing, he did go back. He did an ultrasound. Guess what? He found the head right above the IUD he had inserted. So that poor girl, a 19 years of age, had two um, um, DNCs, which is the procedure it's called, you know, the aspiration. Uh, he scraped her twice because they scraped him to make sure everything's done. He removed the IUD and reinserted another one again, and all that in less than half an hour. Not even the time. I have a co-host on one of my radio shows that I do, and she does like facial stuff, right, in Spain. And she says she takes over an hour just to do a treatment on someone's face. This abortion is not even in less than half an hour. He had already done basically two abortions. So this 19-year-old, and the worst part, 19-year-old doesn't know anything. She doesn't know what happened. He never charted it, which broke the law. He didn't chart anything. Um, he refused to let me put any notes in there, and legally, I cannot. He's the doctor. You know, so basically, he just didn't want to admit that he had done everything right. In fact, he put in the chart that the abortion had been completed without complications. That's not without complications. You know, the fact that you had to do two DNCs, the fact that you had inserted two IUDs does not cause without complication. 
So the only proof I had was that I enter another IUD on the chart, you know, for inventory purposes. And that's how I proved my case. So I walk out of that day, like, I'm done. This is not happening. I call my supervisors and this is not, that's not how we're going to go. I'm not going to be part of this anymore. You do something about him or I will go as far as I need to go. And trust me, I will go all the way to the health department if necessary. I have proof. I said that to him. And um, that's it. So after that, um, well, I got fired. And then probably we're going to talk a little bit about how I got fired. Sorry. That part of my story, it's always very emotional to me. That's uh, If I can say, because I'm listening to you and, you know, talking to Angel with her nursing background and, you know, what they have to do, there's regulations. And um, when I've listened to other people who've left the industry who are sharing their story, I've heard a lot of stories about really they're not following regulations. And as I mean, I'm a teacher and, you know, because I work with kids every single year that I have to sign a million papers as far as what I have to do. If a child comes to me to talk in private or in confidence, I, I have to tell them right away. If you tell me anything that there's a, there's a threat to you or someone, you know, I have to report it. So, you know, my hands are tied. I could lose my job if I don't do that. And, you know, even my administrators will say, if I, if I can't help you, if you drop the ball on that, cause you know, you're liable. So, um, I wanted to know because obviously working in the in the industry, you would know other people and other clinics or just in general. Is is it common where there there are regulations, but there isn't oversight over this? Because from what other testimonies I've heard, and again, I'm listening to talks. I'm not. I don't have the opportunity to speak directly to these people. Uh, it seems like because of how much money it generates people just kind of look the other way when it comes to the lack of oversight or the lack of following regulations or protocol. What, what would be some of the insights you can offer on that? You know, sadly, you won't believe, but I thought my case was isolated, right? Like, okay, must be just this doctor, this plant parent, this abortionist mm -hmm. in this clinic, right? I get out of the industry and then I start meeting former employees, former abortion workers. No. That's not it. It's actually a common practice, especially with Planned Parenthood, right? And, and trust me, Planned Parenthood is one of the ones that follow a little bit closer to the protocol. So you, you can imagine the abortionists that are not Planned Parenthood, right? That that are a private, right? Um, and then after I won my case, which probably we're going to talk a little bit about it in a little bit, so I don't want to spoil it. Former directors from that same clinic brought me, called me and said, thank you for doing that. And then when I heard what they have seen, and I'm talking about directors from 10 years ago, from 15 years ago, from seven years ago, right? When they tell me what they have seen, I'm like, this has been going on forever. This is their practice. This is the way they do things. This is how abortion is done. You know, it's not only one abortion. It's, it's not only one parenthood. It's, it's, that's how abortion, and I, Lately, I've been saying that since the whole Argentina thing happened with this young lady, which, you know, it's so sad. Um, abortion, it's a malpractice. You know, no good doctor can say that abortion is safe. You know, because it is not. There's no way to make abortion safe. This is not about being in a back alley. This is not about one bad abortion. The whole process, the whole surgery itself, it's not safe. It can never be safe. 
because they can't even see what they're doing, Carlos, Angelica. They can't see what they're doing. I mean, you say, Angelica, you have a background on, on the healthcare field, so you know that it's not like other surgeries where they can insert a little camera and kind of follow it. In this part, they're blind when they go inside the woman's body. And even the abortion pill, it's a blind process. No one knows how a woman or a patient will react to pills, right? And especially when you're giving a, co a cocktail, I'm going to say that, a bunch of pills that will make them bleed purposely, you know? And, and that's what happened with the girl in Argentina. She was giving pills to all she was safe. And just so you know a little bit about that girl, she was a leader of a movement that actually demanded legal abortion in Argentina. There's pictures of her in those protests asking for legal abortion, and she died when we told her that's what happens to women. You know, I work really close to a lot of Argentinian pro-life groups, and we tirelessly, the last year, 2020, we worked so hard trying to not have it legalized. And we told them that. My story told them that. Then many women have died on these safe abortions because it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal. It, it will never be safe. Wow, so that's powerful. How, um, how much do they actually, so you're not, what she had obviously was a chemical abortion. So how often do they follow, what is the follow-up protocol and is that ever followed for abortions? Well, the problem for, um, the problem especially on abortions it's that patients are told not to go to the emergency room, right? And not because they care about the patient, which is the sad part. You know, when they tell you, make sure that you don't encourage them to go to the emergency room. Um, it is not for them to be like, oh, because we want you safe and not, we don't want you to spend money or anything like that, right? You will think that a doctor says, call me, I can help you so you don't spend your money in the emergency room. No, it's because if they go to the emergency room, then the news breaks out, right? And then they know that a patient went wrong in an abortion. So they tell patients to avoid the emergency room, right? To to call first, you know, that they can fix everything. You know, that they can take care of almost everything. That sometimes patients feel worse than it is and blah, 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 right? And there's testimonies of people that women call and call and say, oh, I'm bleeding. Well, take out a program, put a heating pad, it will come down. Uh, do this for every six hours or, or do this, you know, raise your legs or, or you know, and be on bed rest. You know, I had a patient that lost almost eight months of her life on an abortion. Why? Because she had a medical abortion, the abortion pill fell, because that's another one. They hardly tell women that 38% of the abortion by pill will fail and they will end up needing a DNC to finish the process, right? And the abortion pill fell and they suggested for her to continue the process with a DNC, which is the aspiration. And then again, it's not because they're like, oh, we're so concerned about you and discontinuing the process after abortion pill fails. No, it's because they don't want the proof that the abortion pill fails, right? And the baby can be born healthy after the pill has failed. So they do the DNC for her and they perforated her. So she had the pill. Two months later, she still was pregnant. She had the DNC. They perforated her. Eight months later, heavy bleeding. She's still not doing better, right? And that was during my just the 10 months as a director of the abortion clinic, what I saw. So they just, that's how the process is. You know, they can't really tell women how much they're going to bleed. So when they tell women that to call the office if something's wrong, 
you know, and then they give them a guideline if your fever is higher than this. Now, if you're telling a 19-year-old in her college dorm to do follow all those guidelines, you know, first of all, she may not even have a thermometer. She may not know that her fever has gone higher than 104, you know, like she doesn't understand what a lot of bleeding meant, right? When you tell her like this many pads per hour, you know, some people, I mean, it is a moment in their lives that they're not all there, you know? It's not that the patients are dumb or anything. It's that in that moment of their life, that's not, they're not paying attention to the instructions. And any nurse knows that, that you're telling instructions to a woman in a time of her life that it's stressful, that she may not pay attention. And then she may not even understand what your instructions are because she doesn't, she's not familiar with that language, right? And they let them go like that. And then when they call, they just give them the rounds and rounds. And then that's how some women have died waiting for them. Now, a lot of people ask, well, why the statistics don't show that, right? That's what I get a lot on the arguments online when I like Twitter or stuff like that. And I said, well, of course, you know, because they purposely don't want you to know that. So my case proves that statistics are being done by abortionists, depending on how truthful they are. And my case shows that they're not truthful, you know, purposely. The abortionists did not report the perforations. So they won't make it on the statistics in the state of Arizona. We actually brought uh, the statistics from the state of Arizona to our court case, and it says that Planned Parenthood reported zero perforations on the year that I had three charts as a proof, three charts as proof that he had perforated women. So statistics are fake because the abortionists are the ones doing them. Because all they can really do statistics on are, you know, if it... if that whole this is where the whole if it ain't written it ain't done if it's not documented it's not done really can be detrimental um you know because i i've been in the healthcare field for 15 years now and you know um it's all the time they they push documentation why because if you don't document that you did it no matter if you've been in the patient's room for an hour giving them the best care it's not done. Well, at the same time, if there was a sentinel event that happens and it's not documented to them, it never happened. Um, and so, and all they can pull from are those charts. That's all the data that they can pull from. It's really, it's a really sad situation. Now you were mentioning that you had gotten fired. Um, so what was the story with that? And that was obviously your end with Planned Parenthood. What, what happened there? Yeah, so basically I reported the doctor, right? And then in the next week, I was told to go and close down my other clinic, the Northeast Phoenix facility who had lost title and needed to close down their doors, right? So they sent me to go close down the clinic. And um, while I'm not in my office at Glendale, which is the abortion clinic, um, I'm Call into a meeting that we had scheduled previously at headquarters, uh, which is almost downtown Phoenix. I show up to the meeting and then they say, oh, Myra, you're fired because while you were gone last Friday, we found narcotics on your desk. I'm like, I wasn't there. So how am I the one to blame? So uh, I knew where they were going with this, right? I knew that it was easy to blame the immigrant, undocumented immigrant, Mexican, of having illegal drugs in her desk, right? So then she will stay quiet. Right. And I knew that that was where they were going. They wanted me to silence me 
with something that will scare me. And why? Because maybe a lot of people don't know this, but if I'm accused of something that's serious, that means I could be deported. I could never be legalized in this country. Something like that on my record means the end for me. And I moved here when I was 18. I mean, my whole life has been here. My kids were born here. My life has been done here. You know, I was only 18. So I had no family in Mexico. So can you imagine what that would mean to me to have to go back? So I'm like, I know what they're doing, you know? I know they're doing it because they don't want me to talk. And then what happens? If I come and talk, they will be like, no, she was accused of having illegal narcotics. She's undocumented. And then a bunch of people will be like, oh, she's a liar, right? So I knew where they were going. And I knew I had to do something about it. Now, I didn't know what I was going to be able to do because, again, my situation in this country, you know, like you don't hear that frequently, an undocumented person coming forward against their employer. So, But I knew I had to do something. Now, uh, the people praying outside, this lady, you know, and I'm just going to explain to you a little bit about this lady because it's relevant. But remember I told you I applied for a job back in 2000 when I walked in through there's barely knew anything about Planned Parenthood. There was this lady praying outside and I walk in, I asked the HR director, why is she praying? Oh, don't mind her. She doesn't do anything. She has nothing to do. She's just praying. You don't do anything. You just don't talk to them. Don't interact with them or anything. Throughout the years, I remember seeing her in one or other clinic, right? Mostly abortion clinics, right? Well, when I take over the Glendale facility, you know, when you take over a new place and they hire you, or, or at least me, I go in all, you know, okay, I'm going to be the first one to welcome all the employees, you know, show them uh, that I'm the first one to, to set the example, right? And then I got to Glendale. I was the first one. The lady praying outside was before me. You know, and she has been praying for over 20 years. Like, it's the same lady that I met when I applied for the job. So uh, we didn't become friends back then. We became, like, uh, acquaintances. You know, she will say, good morning, man. I say, well, good morning, Lynn. And she will be, I'm praying for you. And I will say, thank you, Lynn. And then when I saw her just step over the line, I will go, Lynn, can you step forward? Can you step backwards? I don't want to call the cops, please. The abortionist really doesn't like you. So, okay, thank you, Myra. And, you know, like we were like we had a calm relationship, right? Uh, like she was praying. And then sometimes, you know, I'm going to confess this. Sometimes when patients were like, well, I don't want to have an abortion. I just don't know where to go because I don't have any money. We will go, go ask Lynn, you know? Go as clean and we will guide them to go ask the lady praying outside for help, you know. But we will do it uh, very quietly so the cameras wouldn't recognize what we were saying because we knew we would get in trouble if they see us telling a patient to go ask clean. So when I get fired, you know, this lady realizes that I haven't been there. And by now she knows that I've been with Blunt Brain for 17 years. And she's like, where were she, right? And she gets worried about me. Guys, who gets worried about the director of the abortion clinic? Yeah, the lady praying outside does. And she found her way to find my information and call me, you know, and she was afraid because, you know, she didn't know she could get in trouble. But she's like, Myra, I noticed you just all of a sudden didn't come back. Are you okay? And then I said, no, I'm not okay. You know, and she invites me for lunch and she takes me and says, Myra, would you like to start getting um, healing spiritually? I said, yes. And then she takes me to a praise that, Wait until I tell you a story about that praise. Your hats are going to come off. But um, I, we went to the praise. I talked to him, you know, and, and then between an effort of a whole community that used to pray outside and other people, 
we found my lawyer, Tim Casey. And he decides that the first thing I tell him is, but I'm undocumented. He's like, well, you're human and we're going to defend your rights. You know, and we knew it wasn't an easy case, you know. And back then I was still undocumented. I'm no longer undocumented, but back then I was. And he said, you know, the only thing I won't be able to help you is when we come to the trial, if we ever make it to trial and you're undocumented, the judge may deport you. There's nothing we can do about it. That's the law, especially in the state of Arizona. You can walk into a courtroom and the judge cannot play, just like we said, right? A blind eye and say like, oh, she's undocumented. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. Right. She has to call eyes on me. And I said, I know. I understand. And I remember he even said, would you like to take a few days to think about the lawsuit? And I said, okay. And I talked to my family and I said, okay, I sat down my parents, my kids and my brothers. And I said, I would like to sue Plum Parenthood. I, my lawyer believes I have a case, but the consequences could be that I end up deported. And I remember my son was only about 16 years of age and he said, we'll move to Mexico. You know, and I wow. said, okay. And my family says, we're with you. I mean, whatever consequences, we'll deal with them when that comes and we'll figure out. But if you have to do this, you have to do this. So then I called my and say, go ahead. My family is with me. I have their full support. If I have to go to Mexico, I will, but I won't stay quiet. I will not stay quiet, even if that means going back to a country I haven't been for over 20 years. So we started the lawsuit. Um, we started the lawsuit in October of 2017. And that lasted almost two years because in August of 2019, we went to trial. The trial lasted up two weeks. The amazing part is most of the jurors, there were 10 jurors, right? Nine of them were pro-choice and pro-Plum Parenthood. You know, when they interviewed them, they, they all stated they like Plum Parenthood, they like what they do for women. And they were, I mean, just like everyone answers, you know, it's a woman's choice, right? So... I remember my lawyer said, don't worry, because when you win, that will feel even better because you know the people that were in favor of them saw the truth. And that's what happened in that courtroom. You know, God spoke through the truth. And um, remember that person I told you about, he was there every day on trial. You know, I bless his church for letting me borrow him, but his presence was there. He was there every day in trial. And then finally, August... Um, 16 came on and the jury announced that by unanimous decision, we have won the trial, that they found that Lampard fired me wrongfully, terminated me under the Whistleblower Protection Act. Now, as an undocumented, there were a lot of things that we couldn't file for in my lawsuit. Literally, my lawsuit was held on by just one tiny part of the law, you know, which it was amazing. So... I am thankful to the justice system in the state of Arizona, you know. I am thankful to those jurors that they did their job, you know. They put aside their beliefs, their ideology, whatever they feel about abortion, and sought the truth. And that's what I said at the beginning. My story is about the truth. So then what broke news was that uh, the jury also decided to award me um, $3 million. So everybody was like, what? You know, first of all, because we never ask for anything. I, I want you to know that on the closing statement, my lawyer said to them, I can put an amount of what Meyer has gone through. So Meyer and I had talked about it and she told me, you know what? I told her, you know, I can't give him an amount. And I said, I'm with you, you know, and it's whatever you think it's fair, it's fair, right? That's their job as citizens. 
And when they came back with that unanimous um, verdict, they said $3 million. You know, by then I was a legal resident and I don't think Blumpanger counted on that. They thought I was going to be able to be deported and case closed. But um, so that broke news. And we were just, you know, those two years I worked um, spiritually and emotionally and healed myself to be able to come out and speak the truth. And then I finally was able to join the pro-life movement at the Arizona March for Life in February 2020. And that was my first ever appearance as a pro-life um, activist. And I have decided, you know, the rest of my life, I will spend every moment of my life speaking for the voiceless. I think, um, first of all, your testimony gives me chills and I'm holding it together, but I... If we were not recording right now, I'd probably be sobbing in front of you. Um, it's such a powerful testimony because and your story brings up so many, um, so many aspects of social justice that are not justice. Um, you know, being taken advantage of because of your uh, legal status. Um, that happens so much. And in in so many capacities, and you know, and unfortunately, I can tell you now that that does not just happen here in the United States. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people who work in other countries. Um, I'm Filipino, and we our people have to go in other countries in order to work, and so their legal statuses are also being held above their heads. That was powerful, and and I I'm I am so sorry that happened. Um, I, I, th I find it interesting in the sense because politically speaking, the side that tends to favor Planned Parenthood is always talking about the immigrant and welcoming them and they're human beings and, you know, we have to treat them as such. And I'm thinking that was an opportunity to, I mean, just the planning of the narcotics is one thing, but, but you know, to throw, to hold that over your head. It's, it's, it's just, I, I know sometimes when there's an act of desperation, people will do that kind of stuff. And, and I'll try to take the high road with this, but, but still that, that I'm just thinking of the stress you would have endured going through all that, that. Wow. So what well, I, I mean, going, let's go backwards since we're talking about her immigration status and using that against her. They also used her immigration status for themselves because it's their way of, you know, whenever um, women or, you know, people in general see somebody that they can relate to, they're like, oh, this is a place I can go to because, the, you know, there's other people like me here. And especially when she starts moving up in the company, it's like, you know, seeing somebody in that position that's like them, it is to them, it is going to be a welcoming environment, right? And so in order to make their revenue, they used her immigration status, they used her ethnicity in order to be able to uh, elevate themselves and elevate their own their own financial status. Yeah, and Angelica, so, let's go back to the history of Planned Parenthood. That's how Margaret um, Sanger founded Planned Parenthood in Harlem, New York. She opened, she fooled all the um, leaders of the Black community to help her open the first clinic in Harlem, New York, manage and, and hire uh, Black employees to work there 
So the black community will feel welcome. So it's the same tactic over and over again. Like they have used this business tactic for decades, right? So, and I was used like that, right? Not only like that, but just like many other immigrants, I managed three clinics and I found under in trial that I was getting paid less than um, men, a white man, and I'm just going to say that, a white man that was managing one clinic that only opened four days a week while I worked seven days a week managing three clinics. You know, I mean, if what I discovered by working at the abortion clinic and then during my lawsuit was that, number one, they don't care about women because they didn't care about the women that I reported being hurt. They care about the abortionists. Uh, number two, they care about their financials and, and the publicity, you know, more than they do about patients. And certainly they don't care about employees. I learned that after speaking to so many of them and what I went through, they had all gone through, but none of them thought they could win. You know, if I get a dollar for every time a former employee tells me I should have lost, I should have sued them back then, I will be a millionaire. You know, because contrary to what people think, it's not that they did pay me $3 million. But, yeah. you know, uh, when people tell me I should have started the lawsuit and I say, why, why didn't you? I never thought I could win. You know, no one thought I could win. No one thought the Mexican immigrant would beat Planned Parenthood in court. Well, going back to them caring about the abortionist, right? That story that you told of the 19-year-old, the doctor just wanted to get his job done and get out. If you think about it, it's because the more abortions or the more procedures he does that day, the more revenue they get per patient, correct? So essentially, it's like waiters turning tables. How many? How fast can you turn this table? You know, get, get them out, get them out, get them out. And so instead of actually taking the time to be with their patients and, um, and making sure that their job is done correctly, they're just like, okay, where's my next paycheck? Where's my next revenue coming from? And so that's really a sad sad situation. And that's probably why, like you said, the Planned Parenthood cared more about the abortionists than they do about the other employees, especially those that are um, going by the book, right? Because it's going by the book is going to take time. Now, I wanted to ask because, um, you know, one of the surprises when I moved to, I mean, I'm about two and a half hours south of Glendale, but um, I'm from Carson where, where Angel lives. And Carson actually is very diverse in terms of uh, ethnicities. I mean, it that was one, one of the shocks that I had coming to Arizona was it's predominantly, you know, a lot of Hispanic and then a lot of white. And it's kind of like a little bit of everything else, but it's predominantly that. So that was something I had to adjust to. Now, a lot of testimony I've come across from other people who've left the industry, not just Planned Parenthood, but the industry there's always been those those claims that in a lot of ways the marketing targets minorities. And of course that that kind of coincides with some of the statements that Margaret Sanger had made about minorities and you know people that she felt were you know less Incapable. educated or yeah, exactly. So what did was that something you saw in while you were working there and or do you you know you talked about in some ways being exploited because you were an immigrant, a Mexican woman what, what could you comment on that? Well, uh, the fact that I was sent to the immigrant communities, right? So just like Angelica said, so they will feel welcome by me, right? I'm an immigrant, let you come see me, right? Even knowing that Latin American people are very pro-life, right? They still, like, probably still uh, 
the left part of the country that it's extremely pro-life, right? There's still a bunch of countries in Latin America that abortion is illegal. So knowing that, you know, and having them, knowing that it's part of the immigrant community, you know, they like to have families. They like to have children. You know, it's something we enjoy. I don't know about you, Carlos, but I enjoy having kids, you know? Like, oh, yes. I, it's I been love having my kids. the <laughs> highlight of my life being a mother. Yes. You know, I would never change that for any anything. So knowing that, you know, sending it to the community, especially to the teenagers, right? Because in Arizona, it's not that we it's not like California. You two are familiar with California and Planned being inside the schools literally. But in Arizona, they're not allowed yet. So um but they we're allowed to basically um get community members in a community center and be able to do the talks there, which is what I did, right? And it was part of my job to outreach to the immigrant communities and the locations were um, placed on highly immigrant communities. Just like you say, Glendale, the Glendale area where the clinics at, there's a lot of diversity there too. You know, it's um, a lot of um, immigrants, a lot of Latin American people, and a lot of um, African American people there, right? And South Phoenix, you know, and then West Phoenix, all their clinics are placed. You don't have clinics in North Gaza. Right. And when I suggested hmm. that, they basically the CEO looked at me like I was crazy. I said, well, why? They don't like my partner. Well, they go to a private doctor, Myra, or like a real doctor or something like that. Was he's coming like, OK, so it's that's what they do. You know, it's their history of Planned Parenthood. It's how they have worked. And, you know, I recently saw them put an apology about Margaret Sanger, you know, unless there can't be an apology unless they stop doing what they do, which they will never do because they have seen what a money making it is. Right. So most of these women in Latin America, and then they they argue that, well, we don't go into schools and tell them go have abortions. And you're right. No, they don't. Right. They send me and say, Hey, you know, I remember once they told me, Myra, don't talk to them about abstinence because they already hear that from their parents. You want to be the cool one. They got to right after school. And so it was like, talk to them about condoms, talk to them about contraception, blah, 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 STDs. And then they invite them to come see you. And then, of course, Carlos, when they come see you, what is there in the lobby? Abortion. Now they know abortion is available. And what else? Now they know, like, there's the pamphlets of how to get an abortion without your parents' permission, right? And now there's even how to get hormonal replacement if you're transgender without your parents' permission. And they keep going, right? Anything that gets them away from their parents, right? So same thing with these Latin American immigrants, right? Uh, they don't know about abortion. I told you, like, I had lived in this country already. I went to high school. I went to community college. I didn't know who Planned Parenthood was, and I didn't know what abortion was. When you come from a country where abortion is not legal, you don't hear much about it, right? So going through those communities and talking to these women, and then they not knowing you know, what Planned Parenthood is, and then they go inside the clinic and you're like, oh, I can get all these services and no questions asked. That's the first thing, right? We won't ask you any questions. Like, you're safe there. We won't collide on you. That's basically what every immigrant community needs to hear, right? And Angelica knows, I'm telling you the truth. You make a community feel like at least their, say, their status in this country won't be a problem, they will go there, you know, because they're afraid. And, and that's one of the reasons for my lawsuit too. So the first reason was, to protect those women. You know, I said enough. You know, I remember telling someone, if I hear a woman died and I didn't do anything about it, I will never be able to live with myself. 
the second reason is my immigrant community. They are like, just like Angelica said, the abuse all over the world, you know, like it, it's real. And they stay quiet. Why? Because they'd rather put up with whatever we're suffering here than go back to our unsafe or poor countries. You know, like the reason we moved here was because my country, my city, Mexico City, was already very unsafe when I was only 18 years of age. So my mother said, I can't live like that, not knowing my kids will be kidnapped tomorrow, you know, or yes. killed. So she moved us to this country for that reason. You know, um, I mean, many immigrants come here for economic reasons. I can tell you that, thankfully, I w that wasn't our case. You know, we didn't have any money problems in Mexico, but we were at risk of constantly being in danger in the streets. And my mom said, I can't live like that. So we moved here. And many of them moved that for that reason. You know, they moved here for that reason. So I said, I have to do it also for my immigrant community. You know, just so they know that those big corporations, sometimes they underdog wins, you know. Sometimes the truth comes out and the truth prevails and they can do this. You know, I have heard women here in California. I live in Ventura County, which is close to the fields in Oxnard. And for whatever reason, I have met some of them that work in the field. They have put up with being raped and not say anything. And end up having abortions at Planned Parenthood. And no questions asked. Remember I said Planned Parenthood is known for no questions asked. They not... They didn't even care to ask that woman she has been raped at work, right? But they don't say anything because they don't want to tell them that their boss at the field raped them and they don't want to go back to their country and be deported, right? And, like, that's the reason, you know, that that's my second big reason to do this lawsuit, that people should not, that not because we're undocumented, you know, we're not human and we don't have rights. Wow. Wow, you have a very powerful story um well oh this brings me chills we are actually um planning on having this an ongoing series with myra um yes, and we're you. gonna get into the more nitty-gritty portions of certain topics um in the next coming months so please stay tuned for that um myra we're actually um the we're we're about to be short on time right now, but I would like to know, um, you know, what what message would you like to send everybody out there today? You know, they um they are attacking the core of our world, which is our children, the unborn and the ones that are already here. You know, and by giving them a message that we are the old-fashioned evil side of the story and they are the cool ones, right? Because they understand them better than we do. We have to work at home. And when I mean at home, not only at home in our own four-wall homes, you know, with our own children, but our home, our church. You know, we have to work. We have to let women know that when they're in crisis, we're here to help. There's many organizations willing to help them from the moment of conception through all the way of natural death. We are here. And also, like, we can make abortion unthinkable. You know, that's what the pro-life movement would like to say. It will be unthinkable. One day, you know, my daughter told me that you'll see, Mom, then one day we will look at abortion like we do slavery. It will be unthinkable. Oh, wow. And that's what we need to concentrate on, that we, we don't need abortion. Women don't need abortion. So, and, I mean, chills. I can look forward. I'm sorry. I know I like to talk, 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 so... We'll have so much fun in the next few podcasts. 
Yes. Myra, I, I love that you love to talk because it just, and you know, your, your words, your story, it's, and all you're saying is what happened. You know, you're not putting a spin on anything. You're just stating exactly what happened from your perspective. And it's that in itself is so profound and so powerful um, enough that I, there were times as you were talking, I was about to burst into tears. Um, just seeing the injustices that are done, that were done one towards you two, you know, as a medical professional, professional, knowing that there are people in my profession who set aside their humanity, um, and do not take any accountability for anything that they do. Um, and that they, um, you know, they don't care. They really don't care about the person that they're treating. Um, it, it, it's so, it's heartbreaking. And so um, thank you for shedding light on all of this. Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for your bravery um, for speaking out about this and, you know, and um, really fighting against it now. Yes, I, I'd like to echo what she said. I mean, I'm not from a medical background. Mine's from a theology background. And what's interesting is that my goals in terms of what direction I wanted to go with my theological studies did not, I was not intending on going into a morality or theology, the body direction. And so I remember when I started studying it and seeing how the teaching is showing us that our bodies are good and our fertility is a gift. And how, you know, you were saying earlier about children and, you know, I remember, um, you know, the experiences I had and, you know, I'm a father, you know, I, and I've always been very adamant about, look, I, I'm, I've never carried a child or delivered a child. So I would not even try to understand what that feels like, but I know what I feel about my kids. And a lot of that came from my parents. My, you know, my parents were always there and my mother was always open with her emotions about my sister and I, and what, what your testimony has done is really motivated me to go further to really share the theological message really of how the human person is good and how, you know, what Pope John Paul II tried to really teach with theology of the body. And again, how our fertility is a gift. Like Christopher West would always say, you know, people get pregnant and, and they're scared or they're freaking out. He goes, no, something went right with your body because of all the people that can't have children. You know, they, they would die. They would they're dying to be in your position. You know, I hate to use that word, but it's just like they, they want that so bad. And it's just that our culture has taught us that children are an inconvenience and that, you know, it's all about what you want and, and the, the things that they're pushing on us really are not what our true desires are. It's to be loved authentically and to love others in the same way. So um, you've given us a lot to talk about. We've talked a little bit as, as well after when we first spoke to you and you've really motivated us too with our ministry in terms of what we have to talk about with other people. So thank you so much. Just, I mm. mean, you, you are in our prayers and we thank God for you because what you are so courageous and you were there. I mean, that no one can argue with what you're saying because you were there. I mean, and, all and Carlos and I can really do is, you know, pull the data that we see, which obviously is skewed data, um, depending on who reports it. Um, and even from that and just trying to pull from that and pull from the Bible, but you were smack in the middle of everything going on and, um, able to give us 
real testimony of things that you saw and heard. And so, and I think it's so powerful what you were doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. you Thank you both. Thank you so much. And you're all going to be in our prayers and we're going to definitely keep asking everyone that follows our pages and our podcast and all to please keep praying for you and everyone in the pro-life movement because it's hard. And I know it's really a big mountain to climb. And I'm sure when they see you climbing that mountain, a lot of them don't like seeing you climb that mountain. So thank you for what you do. God bless you. Oh, thank you both. Thank you for what you do, you know, to take this testimony and try to preach to the young, you know, Carlos in school, you know, and, and Angelica, you know, to what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for being um, really caring for people and humans. And, and you're right. They have dehumanized us, not only the unborn, but also elderly, right? As we can see with this new era of com- compassive euthanasia, whatever they're calling it in Europe, right? So, yeah, the battle is real and we're pro-life from moment of conception you know, through natural debt. So, but we're here, we're going to keep fighting. For additional episodes, videos, blogs, and more, visit us at www.hcdtalks.com or follow us on any of our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at HCDTalks. Thank you so much for listening.